0: Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. You might be wondering why is this episode 91? Well, this was first recorded back in 2014, uh, first aired August 18th, 2014. Uh, at that time, the Thinking Poker podcast was a part of the uh, Poker News podcast feed. Uh, there was a brief brief period during the middle of 2014 when we were on their feed. And uh, the episodes that we released during that time, um, we still have the rights to them. But for a long time, we didn't have the actual audio files. Uh, fortunately, Russ Fox, who... Uh, is a great guy in a lot of ways. Um, he was one of our earliest guests on this show. Uh, he also happens to be my uh, accountant. So if you're looking for someone who specializes in uh, gambling taxes, check out Clayton Financial uh, to to find Russ Fox. He uh, has also written a book about poker, um, but he's also listener to this show and he had all the old episodes saved. So he was able to share these lost episodes with us and uh, we're now re-releasing them with you. Uh, releasing them for you from time to time and this is a good one this is Brian Rast I imagine that's a name most of you will know Uh, very high-stakes player plays uh, lots of different games so not just no limit actually has a bracelet in the 50k players choice uh, event and also just like a very approachable easy to talk to interesting guy Um, so this was a great interview in a lot of ways and I hope that you will enjoy uh, for those of you who are looking for more strategy talk, I do encourage you to check out the Thinking Poker store at www.nitcast.com, N I-T-C-A-S-T.com, And that's where you can find our uh, premium podcasts, many of which are geared towards weekend warriors, the serious recreational players, uh, whether cash or tournaments. We've got you covered there. You can also find uh, e-books of both of my books, Play Optimal Poker and Play Optimal Poker 2 range construction. Uh, if you want the paper books, go to Amazon for those. But for the eBooks, uh, you can get those from knitcast.com. Uh, Nate has a book on there. I've got some older books on there. We've got a premium podcast with Carlos Welch, uh, Lots lot of good stuff on knitcast.com. So please check that out and please enjoy this long lost interview with Brian Rest.
1: Danger
2: is stealing in as relapse comes up above the din. It's hard to Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. In Somerville, Massachusetts, I'm Nate Mavis, and with me from Maryland is Andrew Brokus. How are you?
0: I am excellent. How are you?
2: I'm great. I'm great. Life is good. I now live closer to my favorite dumpling place in the greater Boston area, <laughs> and I really couldn't be happier.
0: That's right. You just moved to a, to a new part. Other than location, how are you liking the new place?
2: Oh yeah, new place is great. We have central air now, which means that I feel like a king. Yeah, <laughs> Boston
0: summers are pretty nasty.
2: Yeah, it's uh, Paul Graham. I haven't mentioned this on the show before, have I? Paul Graham, who's like a, a big deal in the startup community. He he's written this long essay about how about sort of differences between cities and of course he's he's high on silicon valley but he has all these great things to say about boston in part because uh the intellectual culture is so good and he speculates that one reason the intellectual culture is so good here is that nobody would ever move here for the weather <laughs> the, the, the the winters are not great the summers are not great either but uh but life is great here.
0: Yeah. I, and, I worked and at house. I worked at a summer camp in Boston one summer and um, we definitely had kids getting uh, heat stroke on a somewhat regular basis. But
2: Jeez. And probably kids getting cranky because of the bad weather on a very regular basis. Yeah,
0: that's true. I, mean, I was thinking they were just kind of cranky in general, but you're right the, the weather <laughs> yeah. might well have been a factor. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs>
2: Uh, and another reason I'm doing very well tonight, other than than the dumplings, is uh, we have Brian Rast on the show. Yeah. This is a get, I this think. This is a
0: big get, and this is, this is just a cold contact. Um, I I just you know reached out to him. I was actually I was I was pretty close to um shutting down. I I, I picked up the premium um run It once subscription in preparation for the WSOP. I fell in love with Ben Salci's videos. Um, I watched. Basically all of those. Um, I was getting ready to shut down the, the premium membership, and I was like, I should see what else is on here. Um, I watched a Brian Rest video, and I was like, oh, now I have to watch all Brian's videos before I shut down. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just uh, I reached out and, and contacted him, and um, he was he was game. We, we set it up, and uh, it's, it's it's gonna have it actually hasn't happened as of the time that we're recording this. Um, so hopefully it's actually gonna happen. But he seems ex- extremely serious about it. We have a we have a date set. Um, so hopefully we won't end up having to retract this introduction and, uh, we are both extremely excited to talk to him about, um, uh, well, among other things, I mean, I think the whole playing in Mikhail as a um, as a white American is, has got to be something of an experience. I'm just curious, like how you even get in those games in the first place and all the logistics involved. Um, yeah, there's yeah. a ton of stuff I want to ask.
2: Yeah. Have you seen that hand that was floating around my Twitter feed for a while last week where, it's, it's on television and uh, Phil Lack raises and uh, it goes check, 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 6x pot. Yeah. <laughs> Brian calls with, with Ace High. <laughs> I, I would recommend uh, checking it out. I think if you Google uh, Lack Rast 150k Ace High call or something, you'll, you'll, you'll get to it. It's really a lot of fun and instructive, too, I think. Yeah.
0: Um. Yeah, so Brian Rest coming up. Other things I want to make sure we, uh, we talk about up front here. Episode 100 is coming, and we want your NickCast moments. Let us know about the lengths that you have gone to to keep your expenses down, either at the casino or just in life. What is the cheapest thing that you've done? What's the cheapest thing that you've seen? We are going to share some of our favorites on the air. Um, although, you know, I, I do actually think there's a difference between nitty and, and cheap, um, and I hope that as much as we—not even joke—I mean, I, I do believe in being nitty in a lot of ways. Um, I hope that I, I don't generally come across as, as cheap because I do think that you know people generally like, or at least in, in circumstances where where tipping is, um, you know, part of the, the social contract, I think people deserve to get tipped. Uh, you know, there's circumstances where well, I don't know. We each know that the other is not cheap. I think we we often fight over who's going to pick up a bill at dinner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I I believe in being uh, generous to people i believe in uh, making the appropriate contribution but i do think that when there are easy things that you can do to uh, to keep your expenses down i think that's pretty important
2: yeah absolutely so send in your your nick cast moments send all send in your hands send in your questions send anything to uh podcast at thinkingpoker.net
0: the other important address to remember is com, and that's where you can pick up the premium podcasts, five hours of Nate and myself discussing strategy from the 2013 World Series of Poker main event.
2: Yes. Those are good shows. I like them. <laughs> and, uh, and who's bringing us our strategy segment this week?
0: Tournament Poker Edge continues to be your source for tournament poker strategy. They've got hundreds of videos dealing with all aspects of tournament play, a wide range of buy-ins from MicroStakes tournaments to the $5,000 WCOOP main event, live and online tournament sit and goes and MTTs and satellites and shootouts, and now there's the new Stop and Go series. Those are five-minute videos optimized for quick viewing from your tablet or smartphone or a regular old computer if you want to get all old school and stationary about it. So sign up today at tournamentpokeredge.com
2: and our hand this week comes from eric it's from a session last week he says it's an 11 dollars multi-table tournament in the middle stages about a dozen away from the bubble uh, our our correspondent has about 43 big blinds and the villain has him slightly covered uh, the small blind has about 15 big blinds the villain is a regular in these tournaments and i have played with him quite a lot over the last few, few weeks as i play more and more of these tournaments He's not horrible, but he's definitely not a crusher. These are just standard $11 tournaments, after all. He seems to do fairly well in these by just playing pretty tight and straightforward. The small blind is extremely fishy and very willing to relocate his chips to other people's stacks. It folds to the villain in the hijack who opens for standard min-raise. The small blind calls, and I defend with 7-6 suited. So again, the stacks are... Uh, Small blind has 15 big blinds. Uh, the big blind, who is our correspondent, has 43 big blind blinds, and the opener covers. Um, I think not folding is mandatory here, and I think I prefer calling to re-raising. I think you probably won't have enough fold equity against the small blind to 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 re-raise. You'll have some, but not not enough, I think. Uh, I, I would rather choose other hands to 3-bet to with. So I, I like a call here. What do you think? I
0: agree with that. And I also think that with the villain being a kind of tight and straightforward player, he's also not the, the greatest candidate in the world to 3-bet um, with 7 high. So, yeah, I, I think when you've, you've got a, a very clearly profitable call here. So, you know, it's, I, I'm sure 3-betting, well, I, I'm not even sure of that, actually. 3-betting would probably be plus EV relative to folding. But um, given how profitable calling is going to be, yeah, this is, this is a very easy call. And I, I think a little bit Eric was trying to ask, you know, whether he should be calling this even in a heads-up pod. And the answer is certainly yes. Um, I would call with yes. a lot worse than this, facing a min raise on my big blind with antis in play.
2: Yeah, so the villains in the cutoff here, is that right? Hijack. Okay. So one off the cutoff. So I would probably, I would probably call with like nine, seven offsuit in hands like that. Uh, duh, duh, and even, even worse. Yeah. Nine, six offsuit say, probably. Nine, six
0: offsuit, seven disc suited. Um, yeah. for me? yeah.
2: Yeah. You got. I mean, you're, so you're getting think,
0: even without the small blind coming in. He didn't. He doesn't mention the antis explicitly, but most likely you're getting somewhere in the neighborhood of five to one when you call. Yeah. You really should not be yeah. folding very often in that circumstance, especially when no. you're not up against a premium range. Even even from a a tight and straightforward player, like his range is still going to be full of unpaired hands, and, and that's all you need it to be to justify calling with seven suited.
2: Agreed. And if he's straightforward after the flop, that even cuts better. down some of your reverse implied odds. <laughs> So the flop is jack, seven, six, jack of spades, seven of hearts, six of hearts. So our hero here has two pair and a three flush. So that's good. (laughs) And he says he decides to lead out for half the pot or three big blinds. This is a very good flop for my hand. And with such a wet board, I don't want the hijacked villain to check behind as I feel this is definitely a board which the villain might not see bet into two people. Okay. Um, What do you think of that?
0: I like it. Um, I think I think this is a, a pretty prime example of a hand that is very strong on the flop. But there are <clears throat> there are a lot of bad turn cards for your hand. Um, that would be even more true if there were a potential straight already on the board. So if the board were six, seven, ten instead of six, seven, jack, so that an eight or a nine could put a one card straight on the board. But um, even so, like I think an eight is a pretty unideal card for your hand. A five is not great. Uh, queen, king, ace are all not fantastic cards for you. Um, uh, heart is not a good card. There are a lot of pretty unpleasant cards that could come on the next street, and I think if you're dealing with a very straightforward villain, I, I think he's right that a, a bet is not going to be forthcoming that often. Including, you know, a lot of hands that do have equity are not going to choose to to see bet here. So I, I I like the decision to lead out. Um, in general, I think that you might want to make your dump bets a bit larger than this, but in this exact circumstance. Um, I think the small blind stack actually serves to leverage the other player pretty well. Meaning, when Hero bets here, um, he's there's a bit of a squeeze effect where the the preflop raiser has to act before the small blind acts, and the small blind has, with with his stack being what it is, he's probably going to shove. Um, play like certainly any any jacker better, but probably some draws as well, um so I think it's it's pretty difficult for the original razor to peel very light against uh I, he's forced to play even more honestly than he probably already plays um even to a relatively small bet like this,
2: yeah, I agree on all counts uh, a final point is that I don't think that betting turns your hand face up too much. I think uh there would be plausible reasons to do this with some draws and even with some like weak draws like Ten eight offsuit or something like that. So um, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't worry that you're 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 turning your hand face up. I think I think uh, opponents could reasonably suspect that you you would have a small a strong draw, a weak draw, uh, a weak made hand, or and um, if anything, they might think it's hard for you to have a strong made hand. Yeah, I don't know about that. I guess some sets are possible, but um, I think. Yeah, I, I, I would not worry about this being a transparent
0: bet. And in fact, I think that when you have a draw, I, I think with a draw, it's a lot closer of a decision whether betting or checking is better. And I think it's worth thinking about when you have a draw, would I want to have a leading range here with some of my main hands? So you know, given that this is a spot where you'd like to bet something like 6-7, I think when you have a hand like 5-4, um, you might think, you know whether I should I should I better check with this hand it's pretty close are there some strong hands that I would bet yeah there probably are so maybe I should bet my 5-4 also that that's my like part of the thought process that I would go through if I were considering I and mean, then I thought I had a pretty close decision with, with some sort of draw
2: agreed agreed so the villain calls and the small blind folds uh, our correspondent says he was really hoping for the opposite result to be honest I mean uh, who wouldn't like to get a lot of loose action in when you're in position? But you get you get what you get. And I'm, you know, two pair against a, a guy who opened in late position. That's that's fine with me. Uh, the turn is the ace of hearts, so that completes the the flopped flush draw. It also puts an ace on board. And our correspondent says, this is the first spot where I wasn't sure what to do. I could check and let villain villain quote unquote value bet his likely ace, or just continue betting, getting direct value from an ace. Um, so a first thing I'd like to jump in and say, I'm not sure how likely an ace is here. Uh, there are a lot of hands that don't have aces that, that raise before the flop. There are a lot of hands that, and and that call the flop. There are a lot of hands that do have aces that fold somewhere. So, um, I'm, I'm a little bit worried. This is a case of seeing an ace on board and immediately putting your opponent on it. Yeah. In,
0: in fact, I think if villain has an ace, you should be worried, um, especially given yeah. like if this ace were not a heart, that would somewhat increase the likelihood of villain have it because he could have ace x of hearts. But um, I mean, if he has an ace, he most likely has ace jack, ace six or ace seven, in which case you're in pretty bad shape.
2: Yeah, that's right. You'll find people showing up here with ace king or ace queen. But um, I if the ace hits him, I don't think you're ahead much. I, I think that's that's very right. <laughs> um yeah so the, so the question to
0: ask is not how do i get value from an ace here
2: i i agree that if
0: true. we if we knew that he had an ace betting would would be well it probably wouldn't be a lot better but i think it might be a little bit better but um i i just don't think it's that likely that he has that he has an ace unless he has a speed
2: yeah so the flush the 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 flush draw came in uh how likely do you think villain is to have a flush draw
0: not terribly um given that he is a somewhat tighter opener the ace of hearts being on the board is a very significant blocker to villain having a flush draw um, i also think that villain might raise some of his better draws on the flop so if he had a hand like king queen of hearts um he's going to have two overs in a flush draw if he has queen jack of hearts he's going to have a pair and a flush draw those are hands a lot of people will raise on the, even like eight nine or ten nine of hearts is a is a combo draw so i think that it's actually kind of tricky for a villain to have just like two hearts and and nothing else going on which is the kind of heart draw i think we would most likely just to flat the flop that's not to say that a sort of straightforward player might not i mean i certainly wouldn't be shocked to see like queen jack of hearts here king queen of hearts um but i think we have to discount those a little bit based on not raising the flop my biggest concern is that hearts are gonna be a reasonable part of my leading range so I'm thinking it may be a little difficult now for me to get value from second best hands um, I guess the ideal candidates would be something like King Jack with a heart or Queen Jack with a heart where um, but I mean at that point I'm not a huge equity favorite against those anyway I, I think this is just sort of a tricky spot to get a lot more value from your hand it's just a bad turn card I agree and I think you should generally check Bad turn cards.
2: I also agree. You would probably be checking this card with a lot of the other, with a lot of the weak draws. Um, I mean, not many of your stronger draws because a lot of your stronger draws got there. But uh, your weaker made hands and your weak draws would be checking. You would like to have some strong hands to balance those out. I think this is a strong enough hand to do that with. Uh, you, you're, you're not loving it too much, but. Um, I, I would put I would put seven and six into a checking range here, mm-hmm.
0: and um, uh, I, I think oh, it's sorry. worth looking back at the at the stack and pot sizes. I, I believe at this point we're looking at a stack to pot ratio of roughly three to one, um, with about thirteen big blinds in the pot and about um, about thirty eight in hero's stack with with villain covering. So I don't think you're really you're, like I don't think you want to get all in here, even though you have two pair. I think it's it's too close to the bottom of your range now with, with another heart coming. Um, and I just think it's there, there are too many hands that you could be behind. So I, I don't think you're looking to get all in. I think that betting betting bloats the pot in a spot where you really should not be looking to play a big pot anymore on the flop i think your hand is good enough to get all in when you get a bad turn card i think you have to change course and and start trying to play a smaller pot and um setting yourself up either to catch bluffs or I, i'm probably folding to two barrel or i think I'm, I'm definitely folding to two barrels here i think you can check call turn and, and check fold really any river
2: yeah, I, I do think that's right. I There might be an argument, though, for bet-folding the turn. If he's really straightforward, and if it's hard to find many semi-bluffing hands, like if you think he wouldn't raise you with, like, Jack of Hearts, Ten of Clubs here now, which I think is pretty plausible, actually, then there might be an argument for bet-folding, uh, if you think he's that honest. I'm not sure I would do it as a default, but I do think this is a case where if your hand can stand one Street of Action and not two, you might consider putting in that first Street of Action yourself.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess we're, and we're probably not too worried about this player bluff raising.
2: Yeah, um, if, if, if we aren't, which I think we're not uh, both for read-based reasons and for, like, board texture combinatorial reasons.
0: Yeah, I suppose that's true. Uh, I, I My rule tends to be, although this isn't, this isn't the greatest example of it. I mean, I, I, the way I tend to think about it is if I have a hand that can improve on, on the river, I'll usually fold the turn. And if I have a hand that, that does have some chance of improving on the river, I'm more likely to play it for a check call. So if I had a hand like uh, King Jack with a King of Hearts, that would be, uh, I think, a very clear check call here where, um, yeah. it, I mean, A, it's a little harder to get value than it would be with 7-6, but also, um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see a river card. I don't want to bet and then face a raise. 7-6 can technically improve on the river, but we're looking at, you know, four outs and not a guarantee that they're clean. Um, and I don't know that you're going to be that eager to play a huge pot, even if you do. I mean, you're going to be ahead, but I don't think you're going to be, like, a huge favorite if all the money goes in when the board pairs on the river. Um, so... I don't think there's a ton of value in getting to see the, the river with his hand, um, which would be another argument for bet-folding it.
2: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I'm not saying I would default to it, but I think you ought to have it in mind. I think it's a, it's a case where, where we should at least be considering it. And I think some of the reasons for it might not be apparent at first. Mm-hmm. So.
0: so, yeah, the uh, the hero does end up betting the turn, which I think is fine. Um he says he bets a little more than a third of the pot or four and a half big blinds. What do you what do you think about that side specifically?
2: Yeah. Um I think it's interesting. I would <laughs> yeah, I guess putting myself in the villain spot, I would think it looks like a weak made hand sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I say this I think relatively independently of the fact that I know what what villain has? I think uh, I think this would look like Jack Nine to me with without the nine of, without a heart, pretty often, or maybe Jack Nine with the nine of hearts. Um, so I, I'm not sure. Villain won't play pretty well against this. Um, I do think that he'll have a hard time folding too much to this, um, which which makes me think that you will in fact extract value with this bet. Uh, a fair amount of the time, so so that's nice, that's good, <laughs> uh, yeah. But in general, I, I I don't love it, and I fear I fear it doesn't accomplish enough, and it and it reveals a lot of information. What do you think?
0: I I agree with that, and I think that may be safe against um, a very straightforward opponent, where like if this just because you know, we've we've emphasized a few times the importance of um, not getting buff raised here. And I do think that this bet is kind of begging for it. This may be a player who just doesn't have it in him to exploit that. Um, but like part of part of my discomfort with betting the turn is that I think I kind of want to have a more polarized turn betting range and use a larger size. So I think I want to bet my hearts and then also my straight draws so I can bet 8-9 you know, and 5-4 and, and flushes. And I think that 7-6 is not quite strong enough to that I want to value bet it for a big bet size. But I also don't think that i have that many bluffs in my hand or like that many that many ways to really balance a third pot bet i think if i were to bet third pot it's just always going to be a hand like this that doesn't want to get raised um and i i just think that's like Kind of, like, like you say, I, mean, I, I can imagine myself in game seeing this and and kind of correctly predicting at least the sort of hand that Hero is going to have. And uh, I, I know that I and, and many players do have it in them to bluff raise here, and, and this player may not. But I think it's something I'm, I'm nervous about giving away that that sort of information about my hand.
2: Yeah, if anything, I think I bluff raise here too much. I think <laughs> especially like online in this sort of tournament, I I'm a little bit too easy to bait like that. So. Um, yeah, I, I think against me this is a really bad play, but uh, uh, against your your average player, I yeah, probably less bad. Um, but but something interesting happens and and the villain min raises. just min raises. What do you make of that?
0: Uh, I think there's enough of a chance that this is just um, some kind of hand trying to get it trying to buy a cheap showdown but like th- this seems like the sort of card where he might be trying to um, slow you down or, or put you to the test a little bit when he has a sort of marginal hand on the order of yours. I do think that includes some hands better than seven, six. Like I could definitely see a six or a seven playing this way. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, you shouldn't be folding that often to men raises. I do think there's some chance this is, uh, you know, like you said, if ace, king, race queen, peeled the flop or maybe even king, jack, or king, queen. Um, yeah. especially without a heart, just sort of min-raising because that's a bad card and he doesn't want to face a bluff on the river or something. Yeah, um, he's yeah. not—he's still not convinced that you have anything. I, I think there's enough of a chance that, that you're good here to just call and plan on check-folding any river that doesn't and, – and you do have those four outs.
2: that That's what I was going to say is uh, it, for a bet that small, your four outs actually make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, Ace King and Ace Queen are a big reason why for me. Actually, I think I think those will raise uh, all the time, and they'll peel the flop sometimes. And uh, they're they're relatively likely, I think, to make excuse me to make this play on the turn.
0: So yeah, I, I think I think calling is fine here.
2: I think I think I think that's right. I think that's right. And uh, our correspondent says, okay. To be honest, I was not expecting that. Okay, points for honesty. <laughs> I figured he would either call or would raise more. If he raised more, I would likely just go with the hand and get it in. Eh, not the, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Just just hit the rewind button a few times. If you're listening to this on an iPhone, you have a little like rewind 15 seconds thing. and Hit that 12 or 14 times. And, and, yeah. uh, right. Not sure if that's good or not. I don't think it's good. Uh, the mid-raise confused me a bit, and I decided to just call. Okay, good. I think I'm ahead of a large portion of his range here still, but I doubt I can get any more value from him with the part of his range that I am ahead of. Uh, Yeah, C4, don't think it's that big, but I think you should call. I think 3-betting here is likely horrible, and he likely continues, only with hands that I mostly lose to. Okay. River is the Queen of Hearts. I check, and the villain bets 20 big blinds or two-thirds of the pot. So there's now a four flush on board, jack 7-6 with the 7-6 of hearts, turn ace of hearts, river queen of hearts. Uh, and now we have a pure, pure bluff catcher, just just 7-6 with no heart. Um, and our correspondent says, this is a pretty hefty bet. The backdoor flush came in, but he never really has a flush here, with the turn being the ace of trump. Uh, not never, but yeah. The only flushes I can see here are King-10 of Hearts, Jack-10 of Hearts, 10-9 of Hearts, and 9-8 of Hearts. Uh, forever. yeah. Yeah. Um, also, what about Ace-King with the King of Hearts? I mean, I guess we thought that that would be less likely than Ace-King with the King of Spades to raise the turn. Yeah, eh, I think you can't it,
0: be shocked to say that.
2: No. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of the stuff you said about... Especially if he's got, like, a, a limit hold in background, a hand like King of Hearts jack might be um might might be a play that he thinks is good where like he thinks he's putting in the same amount of money when he's behind but but stands to win more when when he hits um anyway the last three of those uh which again are jack ten of hearts sorry now i'm quoting our correspondent again the last three of those uh viz uh, jack-10 of hearts, 10-9 of hearts, and 9-8 of hearts would be played differently on the flop, and the king-10 of hearts, I guess he could 7-bluff on the turn trying to rip the ace. Wait, the ten king-10 ten is already a flush. I'm...
0: Yeah, I think that's just a mistake.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or he misreported the board and this is only the third heart, in which case a lot of things are different. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway... I guess he could semi-bluff on the turn, trying to wrap the, wrap the ace, but still have a lot of value. I don't think he's peeling the flop with it that often, though. Uh, I've already put in 14 big blinds out of my initial 43. If I fold, I still have a stack I can work with at 29 big blinds, and if the blinds don't increase for another 10 minutes or so. If I call and win, I will, st- I will have a pretty large stack at 80 big blinds, but if I call and lose, I'll be stuck on 9 big blinds and definitely not in the best shape. I tanked a bit and ended up folding. His riverbed seemed very strong. And at this point, I think most of his range beats me. So I kind of suspect that uh, that our correspondent misreported the board. <laughs> that sense, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, either way. So, right. Um Okay, so I think what we said was really smart, given the board as reported. <laughs> so what if, what if, what if uh, the turn was an offsuit ace, and now the river is the queen of hearts?
0: Um, so i say, and I, I don't think we should,
2: uh, you know, walk walk back through the the whole hand in great no, detail. No, 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 no. But, but I mean, yeah. I, I, how, how about this? As reported, I think this is a pretty easy fold. Yes. Yeah. As as reported, it's a very clear fold. Yes, good. Um, because I mean, you he would have to be like turning ace king with the king of spades into a bluff. Yes, yeah. probably. Yep. And he's never ever doing that. Yeah, I, mean, I <laughs> think even king
0: jack that. is probably not turning into a bluff. No, like,
2: that's no. That's just not
0: no. how this sort of player plays. So yeah, no. okay. as reported, I, I think very clear fold. Um, assuming yeah. there's only one heart on the flop, I think betting the turn um, is, 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 is makes a lot more sense and is clearly good. Um, I think that I still would just call the the min raise and i would still fold the river um i I just don't think there are that many hands that could be like i just think when he calls the flop it really limits the number of bluffs that could be in his range um this doesn't seem like the sort of player player who's who's floating that much and if he does call without a pair the ace very likely gives him one so i think it just really cuts down on on the number of hands he could potentially be bluffing with when when he calls the flop and then the turn is an ace and you do even even with it only being a backdoor flush draw, I still think you only beat a bluff when he bombs the river, especially with like now there being an ace, a queen, and a jack on the board. There's a ton of two-pair combinations that you're behind.
2: Yep. I, I, I agree with all that. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, and he has a lot of incentive to check behind with a lot of those medium-strength hands. So, yeah, absolutely. So
0: I'm going to say very very well-played hand, regardless of uh, how many hearts were on the flop. I, I think you played That's it correctly right. either way.
2: That's right. That's right. And uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed our even more counterfactual than usual hand analysis. <laughs> now let's uh, let's go get Brian. How about I'm that? I'm
0: very excited about the <laughs>
1: How are you this evening? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Doing Excellent.
0: well. Excited to talk to you. And was that uh, was that Brazilian you were speaking, or Portuguese? I guess you were speaking a moment ago.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was Portuguese.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm you're, you're married to a Brazilian woman, right? Yeah. Yeah, you like this is coming back to me now. Didn't you like you either skip the WSOP or um, when, when when you got married to her? Didn't didn't you miss out on a big poker event?
1: You know, in 2011, I was in Brazil for like the first week of the World Series, and then I came back and I won the first tournament I played, and then I won the 50K later that year, and then I missed the main event to go back because my wife had her um, her visa. marriage visa interview like ah. during the main event, so I didn't play the main event that year, which is actually the only year I've missed the main event since I started playing the main event. So...
0: But still a, a pretty good year for you, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, no, obviously it was my best tournament year. I mean, you know, that year kind of put me on the map tournament-wise. I mean, I had been playing big cash games before that. But, um, yeah, I mean, and that was the, I think that was like the last year that the 50K was televised. And it was, uh, you know, at that time it was like, that year I think it was like the second biggest tournament behind the main event.
2: It was huge. So. I, I I watched every minute of that like very carefully. It was part of my preparation one year. So I I, I know that tournament very well. That's <laughs> uh, it's 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 high on my list of like Brian Rast memories. Like how does it rank sort of for you in your career?
1: I mean, it's definitely my most notable memory, like winning the fifty K for sure, uh for, from a poker perspective. I mean I um you know, it's the biggest tournament I've ever won, and and it just was, you know, on TV. It was, like, heads up against Phil Hellmuth, and even, like, the way I won was dramatic because, you know, he just started winning, winning, and I got down really short, and then I won three all-ins in a period of, like, less than a half an hour and won the tournament. So, you know, the whole thing was uh, just r- really... <laughs> it's funny. I can only think of the Portuguese. I've been down in Brazil for like a month.
2: March
1: <laughs> you know, it really like was re- remarkable. So, th- um, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, do you
2: think that? Do you think that Min was was angle shooting in that one hand, or, or, um, where I think where he folded out of turn. Um, there was a raise, and it was maybe only the the out of turn fold that uh caused the the other guy to call. I used to know every detail of that hand, but uh, do, oh. do you remember what I'm talking about?
1: Well, it was definitely not that reason that made um, that made the other guy call. Because if I remember, I think it was Matt Glantz, and he had queens. So, or, or like, it ended up. It was the spot where it was good for Ming to have folded out out of turn, but that it ended up, like I think it was something like Matt Glantz ended up complaining about it, but then he like had queens, so technically it like wouldn't have been bad for him because it might have gotten the other guy. To put it in light, in a spot where he had, you know, such a big hand, I, be- I believe. But the I other see- guy ended up folding, I think, and then Matt Glantz the the- called the with queens, and I don't, I think he won the pot.
2: Yeah, uh, o- o- always Ahmed had ace queen. It turns out. Um,
1: yeah, I yeah. feel like, you know, I don't know, and I'm not going to speculate as to whether or not it was intentional. I mean, at the very least, it was just like extremely careless yeah. to do that in such like a big all in moment, you know, with a, you know, not that many people left in a final table. So, I mean, he definitely he definitely should have gotten a penalty for that, even if it wasn't intentional, just because of basically like, you know, you have a responsibility to follow the rules and not muck other people's action or change the action because you're irresponsible yeah so it, I mean, he definitely should have got a penalty,
2: yeah, especially when it benefits you, like yeah, y- you might think that if if intent is unclear, like if I'm careless and I run into you and a thousand dollars falls out of your pocket and into mine, um I should get some <laughs> kind of punishment for that, right, like whether or not I was trying to make it happen, uh,
1: exactly, a hundred percent, so you know, I'm not gonna speculate on that just because I didn't really have no I have no basis to know, and it would just be me like you know, guessing, but, um, but at the, yeah, at the very least it benefited him and I think he should have gotten a penalty, but.
2: Yeah. Okay. Thanks. It's, it's, it's not what like we wanted to ask you about. I've just always been curious. And like I said, I watched that final table really closely. I think, I think Andrew has some better questions for you now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious now, how, how did you meet your Brazilian wife in the first place?
1: Yeah. So I came down, um, trying to think, in January of 2010 with uh, Phil Locke, like, you know, I had been in, before that I had been in a relationship for like, you know, like two years with a pause, and he was just like, you know what, Brazil's so much fun, Uh, I used to go down here a lot, Uh, you know, at some point we're going to go down, and you know, like maybe a couple months after I was had been single for a little, little bit. And, um, I was like, sure, let's do it. And so, uh, we went down to Brazil and we're like, just hanging out, like going out to bars, drinking and having a good time, going to the beach, playing, playing a little backgammon, relaxing, playing a little online poker, just kind of, you know, having a good time. And, um, I just met her when we were in Rio de Janeiro, went out one night, uh, to a, to like a little like nightclub and, um, yeah, I just met her there. It was like love at first sight. And, you know, we hung out for the next four days um, on uh, the vacation. She, like, you know, stayed with me and then just, like, oh, I'm going back. You know, let's try to get you a tourist visa so you can come stay with me in the U.S. and see my life. Which, you know, it, we, her meeting for that was like a month later and she got rejected. And so. You know, at this point, we were talking all the time on, you know, Google Translate or sorry, on Skype using Google Translate and everything. And, you know, we just kept the relationship going, which was also in large part because I, you know, between then and the time when the marriage visa got accepted, I probably traveled to visit her, um, you know, 10 to 12 times in that like year and eight months. It's much.
0: So you only spent four days with her. Yeah. And, and you kind of got this this level where like it was it was it was worth it to you to go through this level of effort to have to use Google Translate to maintain your relationship and and fly down. there. She must have really swept you off your feet.
1: Yeah, she did. And then, I mean, I think, you know, after that got rejected, I had to renew my I had to renew my passport um, and then get a new visa to go to Brazil. But then I went back down for like two weeks with two buddies of mine uh, for my next trip um david swanson all-american dave who actually does the meals during the world series and then another guy david wells and uh spent you know the whole two weeks with her and then after that basically every trip i did after that was on my own not with friends but um but yeah so
0: how did the poker go over with her was, that, was that um, a sticking point
1: Not really. I mean, honestly, poker's always, for her, just kind of been like, what I do. And she's been a little bit curious about it and sometimes wanted to kind of know more. But, I mean, she still hasn't even really learned how to play yet. So, I think, basically, she's kind of gotten the idea that I must be, like, really good at it. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, I think she thinks I'm intelligent, but... (laughs) I mean, she doesn't really know that much about poker. And I, you know, I explain some things to her, like about how I try to um, manage the risk aspect of what I'm doing. Mm. So I'm, you know, not like, you know, in any one day risking an amount of money that's going to like put our family in jeopardy and, and stuff like that. And, you know, various like business deals more or less that I make in order to, to manage risk. But... um but, yeah, I mean, you know, beyond that, like, she, yeah, she doesn't even really know how to play. Like, if you sat her down at a poker table, she would be, like, 100% the biggest fish because she doesn't even really know the rules <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, we've gone over it a few times, but it's so, like, sporadic that, you know, by you know, she'll, she'll not have remembered 100%. Do
0: you play poker much when you're in Brazil? Do they have games big enough there to be of interest to you?
1: You know, I think b- poker's been growing a lot in Brazil it's been expanding and at some point I kind of want to try to figure out what's going on down here at least with the live poker scene uh, up till now I haven't I have gone to like one or two little card rooms in Rio but that are like really really small like these kind of little public card rooms I've heard of one or two private games but haven't gone so and uh, I haven't even gotten online poker hooked up yet which I I would like to do for when I'm down here to to play. But um, yeah, so for the most part, when I come to Brazil, what I end up doing a little more here is I end up studying some. So when I'm down in Brazil, I'll spend a little bit more time. You know, I'm like halfway through a book. You know, I've watched a couple videos on Run at Once, responded to a few things, been talking with a friend of mine about some poker strategy stuff. So I've done some more studying away from the gant- tables, so to speak, mm. uh, which I do end up doing you know, more often in the last two years since we've gotten married when I come to Brazil. But uh, you know, not really playing.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask if, if it wasn't nice to have a break from the from the playing, even if it's not a break from poker entirely. It sounds like you're doing some some other things besides just playing and you seem happy about that.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's good. I think it's it's good to take a little little bit of break from from playing, you know, now and then. Especially I mean the the longest time that I'm down here is right after the World Series. And the World Series is when I play the most. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a good time to, to get away a little bit.
0: So you sort of are, are based out of Brazil and then travel to Las Vegas, Macau, wherever else to, to play from time to time?
1: No, our family's based in Las Vegas. Okay. And we, I, we, I travel to Brazil and Macau from time to time. I see. So, yeah, like our son goes to school in, uh, in Las Vegas and... Um, you know, like Juliana probably comes to Brazil a little bit more than me. She maybe makes like one trip a year without me for like maybe three to four weeks. Um, and then she's here during the summer for like another two to four weeks than I am. She comes up, you know, during the world series and I come after the world series. So, so she, you know, she's probably here like three to four months a year and I'm like in Brazil two months. And then I'm in Macau probably – for the last couple of years, it's been two to three months. But, uh, you know, I'm – I feel like the games have been getting a little bit worse there. So I'm trying to decide how much time I'm going to want to spend there. So we'll see.
0: And What are the logistics of that? I mean, do, you, do you rent a place in Macau where you stay?
1: Um so far basically I've had some good friends that have a place there and I kind of actually like staying with them as opposed to um, renting my own place or just getting a room at there's like a Mandarin Oriental that's really close to the wind that I would that's what I would probably do I would get like a long extended stay slight discount at that Mandarin it's like really nice yeah but still living so, out of a hotel room for two months can't be too appealing no I I, I actually make my trips three weeks. I feel like that's kind of been like the sweet spot that I've settled on mm. for, you know, me to both like kind of maximize my drive to play when I'm there. And then, you know, also the fact that I kind of have a, you know, I have a family. So like two months is just too long for me to be gone for.
0: Okay. So when you said two to three months, that's breaking, broken into
1: several three-week chunks. Yeah. Usually Sick. that's like three to four trips. So. How
0: do, you, how do you like get established as a player? I mean, did you just. I guess you knew some people who are already playing in those games.
1: Well, so this is a somewhat known, but I'll I'll let you guys in on the story. I was actually maybe like the first one of like the first couple Americans to actually discover Macau on like a high like pretty high stakes basis. I mean, I actually went over to Macau like man like six years ago or something with my friend keith gibson one year in like april or may oh no so i had gone over with andrew roble even the year like the year before that for some like little tournament and the win hadn't even opened up a card room yet and we we stayed like over on the type of strip and like played in some tournament at i don't even know like what the casino is over there. We stayed at the Venetian and there was another casino over there where there was a tournament and um, you know, I kind of knew about it and then the downturn happened in the U S and like the games got really bad. I mean, I remember before that crash, the real estate crash, there was like twenty five fifty plus going live, going off every day. You know, there was just a lot of money mm-hmm. because everybody had a lot of money and then everybody <laughs> lost it.
0: Well, and, and Las Vegas, Vegas was hit especially yeah.
1: hard. And Vegas was hit especially hard. And, I mean, it got to the point where the 10-20 game was, like, dying, you know. And and at that point, 10-20 was, like, a little kind of too small for me anyway to, like, want to play on a regular basis. So we were talking about traveling somewhere, and Macau kind of became the place that seemed to make the most sense because we figured we could send money via the win over to the win there. And, like, we had heard that it had opened up, and there were, like, some kind of decent games. And, like, the other places we are talking about going – all seemed like projects where they're we like, like maybe we could go to England and make a trip. But from what we knew, like the good English games were more private and we'd have to establish a presence there. And then like, you know, we talked a little bit about Moscow cause we had heard of some games, but then we didn't even feel, you know, that comfortable <laughs> <going> <laughs> around Moscow with a lot of money. And like, we don't, we didn't know any rush or anything. So, uh, when we had been to Macau, at least I had been to Macau that one time. And so we went there and, the first trip in April or May or something, you know, this is like six years ago, there was uh, there was like a games ranging between like a really deep like 2040 to like 6120 or whatever. And, you know, we, we had like a pretty good trip and the games were pretty soft. And then I came back that summer with again with Keith and then actually Phil Locke, who had some Hong Kong business, like had heard about these games and he was there uh with another guy and the four of us all of a sudden like some of this i don't know if you know but like one of the guys that played Ron one drop his name is rano like he had just started to play poker and i mean he has a lot of money like saba paul you know the guy who's malaysia he had started to play poker around this time and so all of a sudden the games were like 100 200 like us dollars like and even the biggest we played was like bigger than 300 600 And I mean, there was like this one session where I, you know, won over 10 million Hong Kong and just like destroyed the whole table, which kind of became legendary in the Macau gambling world. And then actually like after I like we missed the first three weeks of the World Series. And then I came back to Vegas after Andrew Robles was telling everyone that like I wasn't there because I had gone broke. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> no, none of us wanted to tell anybody about macau you know like andrew knew about it but like he wasn't telling anybody so then it turns out these guys started a game they like moved it from playing at the win because some of the people didn't want to play with pros so they like made a private game at the grand lisboa which was nearby and by the time we came back a few months later we couldn't play with them anymore and then the regular game because those guys quit was like much smaller and then so like after two more trips that year, which like neither was that good, and I ended up, you know, we were playing online most of the time. We stopped going to Macau, and then about a year, uh, about a year later, like that's when like uh I think those guys and they had a more established game. They started accepting some of the American pros who went over there. So like Andrew Robles and Tom Dwan and a couple other people went over and started playing with them, uh, but they still didn't want to play with me
0: you (laughs) were legendary for that 10 million dollar night
1: just for that win although by the time like you know a year and a half later like that win wasn't really that big anymore but like basically like i went over once and like i didn't get to play but like i saw tom playing chairman heads up like you know a game that was a lot bigger like 5k 10k us dollar blind heads up like they were playing some crazy game and like you know so but like Basically, so much money was getting poured into the Macau poker scene, and some of the like Asian pros over there were making money, it was kind of trickling down. Mm-hmm. And the regular game at the win started getting bigger. and more people kind of started hearing about it, and guys that weren't even playing at Star World, which was now where the game was going, where everyone's heard about it. they were going over to play at the win. and like that scene just blew up. And I kind of started going back again. this is only this is now a couple years ago. And, uh, I mean, the games were really good over there for a while. And for a little while, it was like, it took a while for word about it to kind of get out in the poker universe. And, um, you know, like two years ago, the games were great, you know, last year they were okay. And, you know, they're now the star world game is basically defunct. Like it had already stopped before, you know, Paul and them got put in jail recently in America and like the game at the win is very hit and miss. I mean, there's a lot of times now where it's just pros waiting and maybe you get one VIP, so to speak. Um, So it's definitely not what it used to be. I mean, if you go back like two and a half years, like kind of right after like Tom and Andrew went over and like, you know, you get like a VIP every day, sometimes two or three, and this is at the win. And, you know, then there's the very big game at Star World where, you know, Andrew and Tom were playing and, as I got re back to the scene, uh, those guys ended up being like, I ended up playing at Star World again, some, and, you know, kind of got back into playing both in the private game and in the public game over there. And they kind of liked gambling with me. But, um, yeah, it wasn't immediately. But, uh, I mean, it was, it's a Macau. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but Macau kind of has become like the gambling mecca of the world. I mean, the recorded gambling action in Macau is like, almost 10x what it is in Vegas now and like they have way more off the books gambling action there because the way their casinos are set up with like junkets and these little organizations that essentially act as VIP hosts that let people bet on the side so I mean it's just like the gambling center of the universe and you know I mean the poker games are way bigger there too so you I've mentioned never
2: met a, Sorry, go ahead. Nick. No, I was just saying it's uh, I have never met a person who's been to both places who didn't say that Las Vegas looks like the kiddie Pool after <laughs> after you've been to Macau.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, Las Vegas is essentially now it's like a party and entertainment town. Yeah. yeah. Where gambling's like another thing to do. But like, you know, people go there more just for like all the nightclubs and all the restaurants and stuff. I mean, like it's just different. Like people go to Macau you know, they couldn't even support one Cirque du Soleil show. They had one show it went under <laughs> in like a year. Like, just no one gives a shit. They want to go there, and chain <laughs> smoke all day, and either run it up or go home.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's my kind
1: Like, there's a different mindset. I mean, even when you play in poker games over there, like, the, you know, like, you... W- when the chairman would play in the... I had never played with him in Macau, but, like, he kind of had a rule. Like, if you got to play as a pro... You had to play until you lost, like, you know, a certain amount of money, like let's say 10 million Hong Kong or something, or you know, he quit. So you'd have to play for you know 30 hours or more sometimes. (laughs) Otherwise, he just wouldn't want to play with you again. You know, he just didn't like it when people hit and run, and uh, you know, like that. And run in this
0: case being playing for only 25 hours.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, like it even even at the win where it's like a public game. I mean, you just see different things. Like you'll see a guy come and as long as he doesn't lose the money he has on him, if he's like runs it up, like a lot of them just didn't want to quit. They'll just keep playing. And so sometimes you get in really good games because let's say a fish runs it up and now he's like a thousand big blinds deep. Well now all of a sudden like pros are adding on. And like, I remember one, one K2K Hong Kong game, which is like 120, 240, where like the fish had over 2 million Hong Kong and like every pro did. And it was just like, there was like 20 million Hong Kong on the table. And so basically it's like saying there's, you know, two and a half million U.S. dollars in like a 220 $240 big blind game. It was just like insane. So...
0: And I imagine was, this sort of thing is, is good for you, not only because obviously if there's like a, a fish with a thousand big blinds, that's pretty great. But even if you're playing against some other pretty good professionals who are like not quite on your level, the, um, that manifests itself most when stacks are really, really deep. Uh, yes. So, you know, if you're, you're playing with like a, a good but not world class pro, like he can probably play a one or 200 big blind stack reasonably well, but you give him 800 or 1,000 big blinds, especially if he's also kind of uncomfortable with the stakes, I would think that you start to pick up a pretty good edge even over a player like that, let alone the, the fish.
1: Yes. No, I actually definitely think um, in a lot of those games, that there's definitely regs that are a little weaker that, uh, you know, I think you ha- can have significant edge on in those spots as well. So I 100% agree with that.
0: What are the logistics of moving that kind of money back and forth? I mean, you mentioned being able to send money through the wind. Does that mean that you're not paying um, the the like a currency transaction fee?
1: Well, the wind cut that out at some point because I think uh, I'm not sure exactly what happened, or maybe they started getting beef from the government, or who knows. But basically, when I first started going over there, like you know, a long time ago, they just would let. Me send money back and forth, but recently they've like instituted a rule where like poker winnings don't count as winnings for them. So I think they'll let you transfer money, something back and forth, but it's only what you initially sent and anything you want at poker, you'd have to leave over there. So, you know, then you got to figure out another way to get your money, either trade with people or put it in a bank and, and wire it or something like that. But, um, you know, for the most part, I just kind of like having money in both places cuz it's kind of the two places where I play poker at in Macau and at the and in and in Vegas. So I have a little bit of money over there that I play poker with and I have a little bit of money in Vegas.
0: But at some point you need to turn that the HKD into USD. I mean, do, do you just like suck up a um, suck up 3% or whatever on, on doing that or you have enough people you can you who are willing to swap for HKD that you can you can do it at
1: a lower rate? Um, I mean, at some point, I'd probably just suck it up and pay a percent on it is probably what's going to end up happening. I'm just,
0: I'm just shuddering at, at what that percent translates into, given the, <laughs> <laughs> the amounts of money we're talking about. Here.
1: Yeah, so, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. i probably try to trade what I can and, and then do the rest at a percent.
0: You also mentioned, I mean, as a result, for instance, of that really big pot um, being kind of legendary in the Macau gambling world was the phrase that you used. Um, is that... Is that necessarily, well, I know it wasn't a good thing in the sense that you got shut out of the game, but I mean, you mentioned feeling kind of uncomfortable in Moscow and uh, I mean, the rumors anyway, is that there's kind of an organized crime presence in Macau as well. Are you concerned about being like a high profile gambler there?
1: No, not really. I mean, Macau for the most part seems pretty safe to me. I think um, like for the organized, like, you know, I I would be worried about like borrowing money and not paying it back. To like you know the wrong people, but but um I mean all the money there is pretty much just left at the casinos. Like I don't walk around with money, you know, other than pocket change essentially. So and otherwise, yeah. I mean I I feel like I I haven't worried about my safety over there. No.
0: So you mentioned that the the games there are starting to kind of dry up now. I mean, do you think that's I don't know what, what kind of potential do you think there is to to turn that around, and do you feel like you have any sort of role as a like kind of an ambassador to the the U.S. like an ambassador, I guess, between the Macau and the U.S. Uh, gambling scenes or the poker world, oh. I guess.
1: And by the way, to note on the thing, the, the somewhat legendary thing about it is there was a period of time after that when like this information was kind of trickling out into the poker world, where I had various people come up to me and just kind of joke, where like. So you're the reason why white people aren't allowed, aren't allowed to play poker in Macau. I've, ha- I've had, <laughs> like, five to ten poker players during the next, like, six to eight months at least, like, say that exact same phrase to me. So, you know, like, because <laughs> I guess they made that game private. So it wasn't just something I, you know, I had people say that. But, I mean, it's not something, you know, it's like, it's poker's an interesting world. Like any world, there's, like, kind of different... There's like a currency of information. And, you know, when you know a lot of other poker players who are into a lot of different little kitties in different cities in the world, you find out about different things. But it's not all necessarily public knowledge. And so, I guess you
0: have to know them reasonably well, because, I mean, it sounds like you and Andrew for a while were trying to keep Mikhail on the down low. Um, so I guess you've got to not just know them, but, I mean, know them well enough that they're willing to share a pretty valuable secret with you in this
1: case, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So... But um, anyway, sorry, to move on, what was the... the well, I guess question? just, I
0: mean, do you feel like there's a... Um, what, what do you think it would take to, to stimulate the Macau game? And do you think that you have some sort of role in that as kind of an ambassador between the the American and the Macau poker scenes?
1: Well, the biggest stimulation is just going to be the number of weak players playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, plenty of pros over there who have made enough money that, like, at this point, pretty much any, like, Not even reasonable, just any game that isn't like astronomically large, like there'll be people to play it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, so, you know, I guess the thing that's killing the games is just that there's less kind of fish playing and and there's really no like regular just all the time fish. So the games go kind of wane in and out as there are weaker players, because, you know, just like everywhere, there's a lot of cherry picking that goes on. And, you know, so that's the biggest thing. And I don't really think there's much I could do about it. I mean, you know, the more pros that are over there and willing to play every day, like, the more likely, like, a regular game just goes, even just because some pros are like, well, I feel like I'm plus EV in this lineup or or not. And then, you know, the, the more often that there's a game waiting, you know, the more likely just a random kind of fish can just drop into the game, mm-hmm. right? Like, if, you know, if, if you build it, they will come type of <laughs> philosophy to poker games. I mean, it, it is true to a certain extent. So... Yeah, I mean that's, but that's kind of it. I don't really have that much to do with it. I mean, I feel like at this point, there's not that much more to be said. I mean, the word's gotten out. You can go on two plus two and read Tom Hall or anyone talking about the Macau poker scene, and and so uh, you know, like this isn't stuff that I usually would have said like even one year ago. But at this point, like, you know, I mean the, you know, the one drop has the like Macau business. You know Chinese businessmen, and everybody knows where <laughs> they're actually from, so it's not really a secret that people are playing poker over there for lots of money.
0: It doesn't and seem like there are too to- many, or like I can't name any pros who who are are Macau-based pros, as opposed to people like yourself who are Americans traveling there to play. I mean, are those people just not like coming for the World Series or other kind of high-profile stuff? Like, do they just play exclusively in Macau? Some of these other pros there.
1: I would say that. Well, I mean, basically everyone, not from China, to some extent or another, kind of does what I do. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a couple guys who are in Macau, like, a lot. So, you know, if I'm doing two to three months a year, like, there's some people that do over six. Like, there's this one guy named Ohad, who's Israeli, who he's, like, the, probably the hardest worker of, like, the foreign pros. But even a guy, Oystein, who's, like, uh, from Europe – You know, that was his name online and what people call him. He's been over there a lot. And then, you know, some guys from England, like Andy Mosley and whatever, they're over to, like, various extents. Um, But then there are some basically Macau-based or China-based pros. Uh, Some of them did come over here for the series. I mean, like, you saw in the 50K, one of them made a deep run. Uh, The one guy who made the final table. um, I forget what his what his name is, but, but, you know, I mean, he was a, he's a Macau based pro who actually he like really ran up a huge amount of money in the star world game. So like, God, I can't, I can't think of his name right now. Maybe I could find it really fast online. So I'm not 50 uh, K 2014 final table. Yeah. One sec ratio. Uh,
2: Don Wynn. No I'm no sorry. not John went
1: sure. no uh, uh, Sam Rostan is his like online name I think Sam Rostan or whatever Chun lays out but I mean everybody calls him something else which for some reason I'm feeling really dumb right now he like he has a nickname <laughs> that everybody calls him all at least all like the white people but uh but yeah I mean he's a Macau pro essentially. And I mean, like, there's some other guys who were over here. Um, A guy who actually was living in America before he went to Macau, but he's Chinese. His name is Yi. And, like, he kind of ingratiated himself in the games over there, and he's done well. I mean, he came over for, like, the whole World Series. And there were a couple other guys who were here playing. Like, they played a lot in the high stakes game at the Aria, um, the the big no limit game that went on in um, Ivy's room. That, you know, I played in that some, I played with them. And otherwise, I mean, there might have been a couple people, but I'd say for the most part, they don't come over here a lot. There's probably not a lot of them. And most of those high stakes guys kind of came over because there's kind of a whole group of them that travel that were all affiliated with the game at Star World. So more than just people individually coming over here. But, you know, that might change a bit as time goes on. And especially if the Macau games like kind of stay not as good and they're kind of looking to find other places in the world to play from time to time. So we'll see.
2: So Ike Haxton gave an interview this year and he basically ended it by saying, "Okay, it's been good talking to you. And another person said, "Oh, what are you doing?" He said, "Oh, I'm getting on a plane, I'm going to fly somewhere, and I won't tell you where. And I'm going to play a huge poker game. <laughs> like so. <laughs> I, I mean, like, uh, so is this the sort of thing that could happen again, or possibly is happening again, where there's just a place out there where huge poker games are springing up, and and the first of the well are are, are doing very well."
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's always going to be, you know, like the gambling berry patch phenomenon. Is there's, you know, you find a berry patch and you go to the berry patch and you don't tell people. So, you know, like that's, but it's, it's happens all the time. I mean, there are private games everywhere that are really good. The question is just whether or not you can play in them. I mean, there's like good private games in LA and other places in the US, but they're not necessarily accessible. So, you know, the, the thing that's a little more difficult is whenever there's a game at a public casino, It's hard to have that game be good for a long time and not somehow go private or semi private because if enough people find out, like, and it's big enough, like, people will just come playing it and then that will make the game worse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's Macau was kind of like it lasted for a really long time in a way, just because I guess kind of the it's so far away from where most poker players are from and. And, you know, the accessibility and the number of kind of fish, essentially, are weaker players that were dumping money into that scene. So it went for a really long time. And I guess it's still kind of going, but it's, it's nowhere near where it was like a couple years ago.
2: Given that there are other games out there, are you ever tempted to raise a family somewhere other than Las Vegas?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean... It's kind of gotten to the point where it's, it's definitely not necessary that I, I'm in Vegas anymore. But um, I don't know. I, I'm i not sure exactly if I move somewhere where I would move right now. I mean, to be honest, there's still I'm probably still playing in Vegas a little more than anywhere else. So, I mean, at this point, it, it'd almost be tempting... Like if there was a place in America where I could go and like play online That would probably be where I go, but I'm not sure I really want to Leave America at this point. So it feels like for now and especially because there's no state income taxes I'm probably and the cost of living isn't really very high at all. It's pretty low and I'll probably keep the family in Vegas but Who knows? I mean at some point, you know, maybe we'll even come down to Brazil I mean, especially if somehow poker took off in some way here that, you know, I ended up getting involved in. I mean, the economy in Brazil has been, it's improved a lot in the last, like, you know, 15 years. And so there there is some money down in Brazil now. I mean, I think it's like the sixth largest economy in the world. So especially Rio de Janeiro, which is one of its biggest and most wealthy cities, you know, if... I figure out something down here, you know, maybe I'll relocate to Rio de Janeiro. So,
2: who knows? Does the Rio casino seem even more absurd to you now that you <laughs> actually know what Brazil is really like? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, it does seem a little bit absurd how small the games are kind of at the casinos here compared to what I, I mean. I think there would be potential for. Some of that is if I wonder, I mean, I wonder maybe it's like people don't feel safe gambling for a whole lot in a public place you know i don't i don't know exactly why that is i mean cuz it feels like like i'm it's almost like kind of well where do wealthier people that want to play bigger games than like essentially like $1 $2 or something like where do they play like other than the internet so i mean uh, or a private game but um i don't know i've been i've been pretty lazy about you know, trying to figure it out. And it's also, it's not like my wife, like, knows poker players here. So, so you know, we, but um, who knows? Maybe, we'll, maybe one of these trips down here, we'll, we'll get going on that.
0: Have you looked in, like, your son is school age or close to school age, right?
1: Yeah, he's, well, he's uh 11. So he's in, I mean, he, he's, you know, my, my, actually my stepson but he's he's my son okay so yeah
0: so is is he i guess he is in school in in i guess it it doesn't strike me as a place that has world-class schools is where i'm going with this
1: no schooling system in vegas is actually not that bad so we we actually just this year is going to be in a private school in vegas that's actually out in Summerlin, and i'm i'm uh kind of in the process of relocating the family from like living in panorama towers which isn't I mean it was nice but it's not really like a that family friendly to being yeah. Yeah. to being in like a house out in Summerlin. So where you know people can ride bikes and we can have a couple dogs and and won't be on the 21st floor of an apartment building that doesn't have <laughs> a grass field, you know? So so yeah, that's uh now that he's going to be going to basically he's going to school in Summerlin, so the longer that we don't relocate, the more kind of like I mean, it's definitely going to be a bit of a process before the relocation with him going to school every day. You know, twenty-minute drive. So, we are we're kind of doing that right now. Are you are you
0: really actively seeking out the uh, kind of the greener pastures that the berry patches that we talked about before, or are you kind of relying on um, just having enough of an ear to, to the ground in the poker world that you would hear about it if uh, if a new good spot cropped up?
1: Well, for right now. I'm somewhat more in the second camp. I I mean, I feel like I've done pretty well. There's a number of things that happen between, you know, the World Series of Poker. If I get invited to some televised thing like the Premier Poker League, which, you know, might pop up now and again. And then, you know, going still going to go to Macau a couple times. And, yeah, just keeping my ear to the ground. I mean, poker has, like, I'd say you know, the economy has been doing a little bit better and like the Vegas poker scene has improved a little bit. And so like I do play there sometimes I have been having some more success recently playing like mixed games and, you know, different, especially if like I'm the game has like some big bet games added to the mix. I've, I've done quite well. So, you know, I've kind of expanded a little bit. I know there's like a mixed game that happens in San Diego that I've haven't really traveled to go play yet, but it's like super close and I might go. And I have started to have a couple like private game options open up to me that like I'm I might take advantage of that I mean just like Ike I'm not really gonna discuss. So <laughs> so you know, like I, I think I have enough going right now that um, I feel okay. And it's not like I'm not really I'm just not I don't think I'm ever really going to be at a place in my life where I want to be playing like one hundred percent of the time. Mm. So I mean, I don't really have enough action right now where, at least from a live poker perspective, I could be playing like all the time, short of like just going to Macau or something. But you know, having like little ons and offs is like almost exactly what I want in my life right now because I have, you know, I want to spend time with my family and and whatever, and you know, I guess I'm lucky and blessed that like financially. I can sort of afford to do that. So D- does
2: your son know how to play poker?
1: Uh, you know, he has uh he knows a little bit. I've taught him. He doesn't know. I wouldn't say he knows how to play per se and he's definitely not like thinking about it on a strategic level, but I mean, I've taught him about like what beats what and we've we've done like a couple there've been one or two times we've done a couple simple heads up just you know messing around with like small chip stacks so he's he's uh i feel like and this has just all happened i'd say in the last kind of like just this year calendar year so i I think you know maybe over the next couple years he'll have kind of like maybe learned how to play and we'll see how interested he is in it so i think he's i think he's kind of interested
0: Did you have any difficulty, I mean, did he have difficulty, like, picking up the... I mean, it it sounds like he knows the rules, but not necessarily the strategy. Um, Have have you put any thought into, like, how you would go about teaching poker strategy to an 11-year-old?
1: Yeah, I... At this point, I haven't put a lot of thought into it. I mean, I think, like, I'm gonna just kind of take a slow process of having him play and sort of just make sure that the game stays fun for him for a little while because I mean at this point there's really no rush for him to get really good (laughs) then kind of as you know as time goes on trying to just like show kind of explain like little things to him here and there and just work on really like basic concepts like you know, eventually some of the first things they'll teach, okay, so like why do you bet? And you know, one of the it's like, well, bluff or for value. To call with a worse hand or to fold a better hand. You know, and stuff stuff like that, which I, I haven't even really started with any of that yet. So I mean, I, I think early on you just wanna stick with some like basic concepts, but that are really like fundamental. And just go from there, and not try to worry about like small things or nitpicking like little things from hand to hand. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, as time goes on, and it's clear that you know he has a grasp with those, and you just add more stuff in. It'd probably be how how I do it. And obviously, you know, with it'll, you know, with your own son, it's kind of more hands-on approach, you know, while, while he's at home. So. <laughs>
2: but it sounds like you 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 welcome the thought of him following in your footsteps and learning the game and this is something you want to do.
1: Um, I mean actually it's not something that I would say that I want for my son you know it's like something the way I think about poker is this and like this is why I mean I definitely haven't pushed it on uh, either my wife or my son at all. in fact, my wife has almost... Pushed it on me more to like teach him because I mean we've even had the conversation. she's like Why don't you teach Krishna poker? And I've been like, well, I mean he's a little young Maybe get a little better at math and stuff before we start doing it But she's really wanted me to do it if anything just as a way for him to Kind of expand his brain into like a new thing that he's he had. you know what I mean? Like I think yeah, it's, always, it's, it's, it's a
2: great for, way well, to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like almost like oh start doing Sudoku puzzles or oh start doing this You know, like the more that you push your brain to do and learn new things kind of the the better it is like and from an elasticity or almost like a muscle confusion like brain confusion standpoint so so which is why I've kind of done it but no like not at all I mean I think poker is the type of thing where so like anything in life in order to be really good at something that's relatively complicated like you have to dedicate yourself to it and be passionate about it and like you know pour yourself into it and so like with poker You know, unlike other hobbies, say where you know they might be like poker, you can actually like lose money and like have negative consequences for not being good. Whereas, you know, and as well as time and effort and whatever. Whereas other things maybe you'd more just lose your time and effort if you ended up not being good at them, as opposed to like having finan really dire financial consequences. So like from that attitude, my attitude with my family has more been like, unless I almost don't want to teach them unless like they come to me and are like, yes, master Yoda. I want to learn. <laughs> and then I'll be like, yes, Luke Skywalker, I will teach you, you know? But like, if their attitude isn't like that, I'm not going to be beating down their door to have them be mediocre at a game that'll <laughs> they'll probably end up losing money at in their life. Right. You know, that's, that's how I feel about it. So, um, you know, I've, Kind of said that to which my wife is like, "You're arrogant." <laughs> but but you know I, you know I was kind of like joking, you know. But but I mean that's how I feel about it. So I mean my son right now his passion is soccer, and mm-hmm. I actually am encouraging much more in soccer than I do with poker. Okay. So I yeah I have no real desire. I mean I guess you know there's always a part of you that's like, oh if your son ends up following in your footsteps, it's kind of cool. And I mean obviously if he did that. I'd be able to teach him and help him a lot more in a, in a lot of ways directly than I can with soccer, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I don't, it's not something that, you know, I, I need And in fact, it's something that, uh, at some level I would feel more cautious about than if he, you know, than him wanting to be a soccer player, which I mean, kind of the negative fallout of that not working out is he's more athletically fit because he spent a lot of time <laughs> running around not like he has a bunch of debt (laughs) (laughs) you know so yeah
0: how about for your own improvement what are the things that you're doing to study when you're um, taking one of your like poker breaks in brazil
1: um i you know i for the last little little while it's always involved poker videos to a certain extent you know um i like i've watched a few videos on run at once, like I've really enjoyed, I watched the last series I watched, I watched Ben Sulski's there. He has a four video series on toy games, Yeah, of which I actually really thought the second game, which um, ends up discussing kind of like bet sizing versus your range and the ratio of like bluffs to value bets. Like, I feel like that has really interesting and obvious applications for basically all, almost all big bet poker games, you know, as so far as, like, how much of your range you should be bluffing and not bluffing, and then based on what that range is, like, what your bet size should be optimally at, for game theory, game theoretical optimal frequencies. And, I mean, I thought that was, like, super fascinating and easily applicable. And, um, you know, so that, I mean, I think I'm reading halfway i'm almost halfway through like will tipton's expert heads up no limit hold'em i played some time this summer on like the heads up limit hold'em bot and talked about it with a friend i i you know downloaded poker snowy and i've played it a little bit poker snowy sucks i can beat it (laughs) you know like just it's um but like thinking about how to beat poker snowy and what i'm doing and so i mean i've just done like just mess around with a couple different things that are like different from just playing. You know what I mean?
0: But it seems so, like a
1: lot of that's kind of game
0: theory driven. Uh, like all, all those sources that you mentioned are, I, I think of as being pretty, pretty, actually, I'm not that familiar with Tipton's book, but other than that, they all seem like they're, they're approaching like more trying to learn optimal more so than exploitive
1: strategy. Exactly. We'll see what I think is like, basically for me personally, I've spent ever since Black Friday and I haven't played online, I have been playing mostly just live poker where I'm just trying to exploit the shit out of people all the time against people that oftentimes have like relatively exploitable things in their game. Mm-hmm. And so for me when I'm away from the table, like I really think the more time that poker passes and technology advances and people are able to study and get better at poker, like the more useful it is to know how to or have an idea about what game theoretic game theory optimal poker is. And, you know, what that means about my ranges and how I should be playing. So when I'm away from the table, I mean, I feel like that's what I want to study. And so, you know, the more I have a good idea about that, the more I'm going to feel good about, you know, the first, you know, when I'm playing against really tough players, maybe in like nosebleed tournaments. And I don't necessarily have a bunch of exploitive reads that I want to use against them. You know, it's stuff that you can just fall back on and, you know, play unexploitable good poker. So,
0: and I think too, you know, the more that you understand what, what, you know, optimal poker play looks like the more you can recognize some things that might not jump out at you immediately as exploitable either in your own game or in other people's games like when you have a sense of here's how the game is sort of optimally played and I can see that you aren't doing that so that opens up that must open up some opportunity for me to take advantage of you and it's just a question of finding out what
1: that is yeah precisely and I mean I think you know you can't really study away from the table that I mean that process of you know, seeing what people are doing that isn't optimal and then exploiting it and adjusting in your own game, I mean, like, that's what you do at the table when you play. So when I'm away from the table, I'm not really going to be practicing that. So yeah, that's why, I mean, that's sort of the basis for why I'm doing all these things right now, which appear to be more focused on GTO play and stuff, because, I mean, that's something where I feel like I'm not, like, I'm not really working at that when I'm playing, especially, like, a lot of live poker games like you know a lot of World Series of poker tournaments are against relatively weak players and even a lot of live games that I play and have players that aren't you know I'm not playing against WCG rider or somebody who's like been studying game theory optimal poker and you know like all these optimal frequencies to have and stuff so it's uh, but it's something that I definitely want to like keep up with the times with and um, and know what's going on and be able to apply these things to my game and, and understand, you know, to a better extent, what playing GTO looks like. And, and, you know, so it, for all the reasons you said too, not just so I can do it, but so I can evaluate other people and and maybe how they're deviating from it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I, as, I, I do. And I, I think I mentioned to you when I first contacted you, I really like your videos on um, run at once, but you know, you can tell like when you look when, when you put you alongside salski galfond uh, Sean LaFord is the other one I, and like all those guys are so game theory driven like of the people I've watched on um, on run at once it, it seems like you're the one who the, the strategy that you talk about is is kind of least centered around uh, game theory so I guess I'm not surprised to hear that you're uh, that that's like the frontier
1: for you or the thing that you're trying to learn more about yeah I mean I like um, I've always tried to approach poker from both aspects and I mean For Most of my 20s like when I was playing I actually played a lot online. I mean, you know I I played in some of the full tilt nosebleed games. I worked my way up I played both live and online, but then you know in the last maybe three years I've played basically not online at all and I would say, you know if you went back a while ago I mean talk about approaching poker from like a GTO standpoint which would have been something by the way if I was like a younger player playing online in a different part of my career I mean, I, like, the math involved with this is would not be difficult for me. And, like, if, you know, I probably would be all over it, you know, from studying it even from a pretty, like, in-depth mathematical standpoint. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm not. Like, when I played a lot online, I mean, sure, it was, like, a different kind of way of playing, but it was still a lot more kind of feel-and-read based. And, I mean, even, you know, five or six years ago, like, Holden Manager and stuff was just kind of starting to work its way into what – people were doing you know now it's like you're like how could you not be using that and playing online sort of I'd feel like forget about analyzing a lot of the statistics in depth while you're you know adapting to people so so you know it was a little bit different but um yeah I think I mean especially with games that are a little bit more simple like heads up no limit I mean like I've been a little bit more interested in that because I feel like a game like heads up no limit it's it's a little bit easier right now to to apply gto and it's something you'd want to apply against a good opponent a little bit more cuz i feel like i feel like when you just have one opponent it's like that's an obvious basis that you start from and it's very easy to see ways in which maybe you know your opponent's calling too much or folding too much or just doing too much or too little of any one thing and then you make an adjustment whereas and you only have that one like connection node between you and your opponent to adjust from. Whereas, you know, when you're playing like in a even like a six-handed game, now you have uh, 21 connection nodes between different people with 21 different dynamics, right? So, you know, like it's very quick that you start making like pretty serious adjustments, oftentimes from what quote-unquote GTO optimal play would be. Right. Like it's even simple things like, well, when I'm in the hijack, like the button is like way too tight in this spot and the cutoff isn't going to mess with me enough. So I'm going to open like 10 percent more hands or 15 percent more hands than I normally would in this spot, you know, or something like that, which is although you make adjustments like that, like super fast or like you realize that the hijack is doing that when you're in the small blind. So you three bet them a lot more or just anything like that. And I mean, I I feel like. I just feel like, in some of those situations, you end up deviating from GTO like so fast based on pretty simple reads that you make on people that you just don't it's not as interesting as in like heads up applications. but
0: so when Phil Locke shoves eight times the pot on the river, are you saying to yourself, well, you know he's <laughs> he's risking eight units to win one. you know I, don't, I only need to call here eleven percent of the time. Or are you saying to yourself, you know this guy's clowning I have ace high. I call.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, what I said to myself, which I think I said out loud, is like this is such a big fold in the books. I think I remember saying that because, well, yeah, I mean, shit, the guy's shoving eight times the pot, and if I'm wrong, I'm out of the Premier League. So, like, the amount of time that I need to be right here is, like, such a high percent, you know, where I could fold and have 200K in chips. But then the more and more I just sat there thinking about it, the more and more it just felt like, yeah, he's just, clowning like this has to be a bluff i just how could i see him doing this for value like he knows like i can't call and he's going all in and I, it's like just felt like he just knew he couldn't bet like some kind of normal amount and get me to fold ace high which is like what i always have so so i just talked myself eventually into going with my read
0: and he took and a then, sip but, of water
1: yes uh you know what that i didn't even notice that at the time i i'm i think I mean who knows if unconsciously it had some effect on me or not, but definitely not something that I when I saw him do it, I didn't go, Oh wow, yeah, he looks uncomfortable right now or he's changing course of action, like Antonio said. Like I was like so kind of engrossed in my thought about what was going on that I, I don't I'm pretty sure that that didn't affect what I was doing.
0: Super. Well thank you very much, Brian. It's been great talking to you. Very interesting. Yeah, it
2: has been what I really appreciate it. You 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 taking the time. It means a lot. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks guys. I mean cool so is this uh this is going to be up in a in a couple days or something on your website
0: uh it should be up pretty much exactly a week from now okay um and that'll be up on uh it's 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 on the poker news podcast feed and it also shows up on uh on my website which is thinkingpoker.net and i I can even let you know if you want when it um when it's up i can send you a link
1: yeah all right well uh
2: i can send you the pictures immediately if you want
1: Cool. No, it's I'll I'll just wait and uh, I'll check it out when it comes up. And with the picture of Krishna and me, I guess. So that'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show him that. I'll be like, hey, check it out. You're on the Internet. He's famous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thousands of degenerates know what you look like.
1: (laughs) Uh, All right. Thanks a lot, Brian. Have a good night. Have a good night. Yeah. Thank you guys. Good night.